Greetings to all those who walk the path. My name is Lewis and this is Budo, The Martial Way. Today, I would like to share with you the story of my most recent retreat deep in the mountains of Hyogo Prefecture at the Zen Monastery Antaiji. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll have seen some of the photos already. If not, I suggest you check it out at Weibudo. Those images will nicely accompany this story of my practice during the Golden Week holidays. So let us begin. This trip to Antaiji makes the third retreat I have attended in Japan, the first being to a Rinzai Zen temple in Kamioka, just outside Kyoto, which was a very small temple. There was only me and a couple of other monks there. And then later I attended a retreat at Eheji, which is the head Soto Zen temple in Japan. Around 300 monks are living and practicing there. Antaiji is also a temple under the Sotoshu lineage, so I already had some idea of what to expect. But of course, every temple is different, and being much smaller and way out in the mountains, they have a very different life, a different practice and way of living. If you would like to hear about my previous retreats, I've already spoken about them in episode 8 of the podcast. You can check that out too if this kind of life interests you. So to start with, I just had to get to the temple. Antaiji is almost 400 kilometers from Yamanashi as the crow flies, but I am not a crow. <laughs> So the journey was much, much further than 400k. To start with, I had to go in the opposite direction. I went into Tokyo to get the overnight bus from Shinjuku. That took me to Yonago in Totori, which is actually more than 100 kilometers past my destination. You really have to take such a roundabout journey to get to this place. After arriving at Yonago at like 5 a.m., I had to get the local trains along the coast for about three hours to Hamasaka Station. Once I finally arrived there, Ekosan, the abbot of Antaiji, graciously picked me and another visitor up in a K-truck. From the station, we drove down deep into the mountains, and the last few kilometers were quite impressive. The road becomes increasingly narrow, and more than once, there were corners so tight that we had to reverse the tiny truck just to get around it. I was later told that one of the previous abbots actually died trying to traverse that road during the winter, and I can believe it. The road is incredibly narrow with a lot of sheer drops right along the edge of the road. In winter, when there's a foot or two of snow, I would absolutely not want to drive along that road in any kind of vehicle. So eventually, we made it to the temple. And although it was quite an ordeal to get there, I'm also kind of glad for it. That's what you want, isn't it? You wouldn't feel like you're on much of a retreat if it was a temple in the middle of Tokyo and there's a 7-Eleven right across the street. This journey, this process of removal geographically, 
it reflects the feeling of inner separation. To remove yourself from your normal life, to go deep into the mountains, far from home, away from the usual distractions, that's what we're there for. This is truly a retreat. Practicing Zen Shugyo at Antaiji, Zen training, was quite different to my previous experiences. In many ways, it was very similar with the eating practices especially, but the daily routine was very different. At Antaiji, we would meditate first thing in the morning and last thing in the evening for two hours. We would have two periods of seated meditation separated with 10 minutes of walking meditation. This is fine. This is what I'm used to. But at the previous retreats I've been to, I actually did more meditation. Previously, I did about five or six hours of meditation spread throughout the day. But here we did the two hours at the very start and at the very end. And then throughout the day, we were working the land. This retreat was during spring, so it was time to plant vegetables. I understand that during winter, they often have deep snow, sometimes for months. So they really need to work now and prepare all the food they can for winter. It sounds so primitive, working during the winter months so you can stockpile food for winter. Like, what is this, the medieval ages? But really, this is how humanity lived for hundreds of thousands of years. You're not going to be growing potatoes under two feet of snow. You need to do what you can when you can. It's only now with global logistics that we can eat pretty much anything all year round. I mean, even when I was a kid, I remember strawberries being a seasonal thing. Now you can buy them literally 365 days a year. So anyway, I digress. The first couple of days I did some seed planting, uh, but what I spent most of my time doing was chopping wood. I was glad to. I volunteered for it. And while I had a couple of other people helping me here and there, it was basically my mission for the first two days. I chopped so much wood, honestly, so much wood. After that, my hands were actually a little swollen for the rest of the retreat. I guess because I was using muscles I'm not used to, I had to keep stretching my hands out afterwards, but it was great. I loved it. Deep in the mountains, the fresh air, the trees, the quiet, the sound of the birds, the scenery, the temple. It was great to get away from the absolute nonsense, especially on the internet. If you use the internet for anything, it's almost impossible to avoid bullshit American social politics. Everyone arguing non-stop about race and gender and just a whole lot of noise about nothing. But when you're out there in the purity of nature, just working, doing what you need to do for the sake of the people immediately around you, that's what life should be. I also spent one morning picking weeds in the Zen garden. That was nice. Careful, delicate work. It's slow going, but very satisfying to look back at the area you've covered and see it nice and clean. It reminds me of the 2009 movie Zen. 
There's a scene in which Dogen is picking weeds and one of the junior monks rushes over and says, Dogen Summer, you shouldn't be doing such menial work. Please leave that to one of the novice monks. And Dogen replies that this work, picking weeds, is very close to the Tao. It is true to the way. It's also quite common to use the metaphor of picking out negative thoughts to be much like picking weeds. Because no matter how many weeds you pick, they always grow back. Just like how you pluck the thoughts from your mind and they always return. But still, we work on it anyway. And we do so with peace and equanimity. After we finished picking weeds from the Zen garden, we used wooden rakes to carve lines in the stones. That was nice and a very satisfying end to our work. You can see photos of that on Twitter. One morning, a local hunter delivered a deer to the temple. I was quite surprised because when I was at Eheji, the food was all vegan. And being a Sotoshu temple, I expected it to be the same here, but I'm glad it wasn't. I think pretty much every day we ate meat. We had a lot of deer and wild boar. We had karage one day, fried chicken, and one morning we had fish too, but mostly shika and inoshishi, deer and wild boar. It was interesting when the hunter delivered the deer. We strung it up and one of the monks went to work on it. I was impressed to see the confidence and clear experience he had with butchering animals. He cut the head off, then we helped with removing the organs, skinning it and cutting off the meat. Since coming back, I've shown people photos of us butchering the deer and I'm shocked at how some people react to it. Certain people refuse to look at the photos. They act horrified like it's some great and terrible thing. And most of those people eat meat every single day. I really don't want to criticize anyone, but honestly, that strikes me as some pretty significant hypocrisy. How far have we been removed from the food that we eat that you can eat meat every single day but can't stand to see where it comes from? This is shocking, not just from a practical standpoint, but also from a moral perspective. Every time you eat meat, an animal has died so that you can sustain yourself from its flesh. And we should all be very consciously aware of that. Otherwise, you don't really deserve the privilege of eating meat. Meat is not just some product. It's not a bottle of Coke or a bar of chocolate. It is a living, breathing creature that has given you its very life. Well, even a chocolate bar. I've seen videos on YouTube of people in South America who farm cocoa beans but have never eaten chocolate before in their lives. Really, we need to be more conscious of what we eat, where it comes from, the effort and sacrifice that has gone into providing us with literally any food we could possibly ask for. This is what I think about before I eat. In Japan, 
there is the practice of saying itadakimasu before eating. It's kind of like the Japanese equivalent of saying grace. Not everyone says it, and I think most of the people who do say it just kind of say it out of habit as a throwaway comment. But when I say it, I stop with my hands together in gasho. And I take a moment to think about the food I am eating, to think about the effort that was put into growing the fruit and vegetables, the rice, the potatoes, the life sacrificed so that I can eat the meat. The men and women who paid for this food with their sweat, the logistics of the people who transported it and stored it, and finally the cook who actually prepared the food. Even the simplest of food, the most basic of cheap and easy meals you can buy at any chain restaurant, it's hard to imagine the multitude of people that went into preparing the meal for you from the very earth to your plate. But we don't see any of that. We just go to the restaurant, order whatever, and a few minutes later, someone puts a plate in front of us. There it is, like magic. Ask and ye shall receive. So having these experiences, planting vegetables, butchering meat, this brings us back to reality, back to the truth of the world we live in. It reminds me of、uh, Miyamoto Musashi, the legendary samurai. If you've read the book Musashi or the manga Vagabond, you'll know the part of the story where he kind of takes some time off. He builds a small hut next to a village and just decides to work the land for a few years. Even the greatest and one of the most deadly warriors to ever live. Had a time in his life where he returned to the land, returned to the most vital and fundamental practice of all growing food. On the morning of the last day, we planted rice, and that was a great experience too. Something I have wanted to do since I came to Japan. We started before sunrise, super early in the morning, and it was good. It was slow. Tedious, repetitive work, but again, you get into a routine, a flow. Just like any other task like this, it can be used as an opportunity to clear your mind. Practice the same meditative techniques we practice when we're sat on the cushion concentration, clarity, equanimity. It's all there on the cushion, in the field. When bathing, cooking, eating, our true realization of the way is reflected in every action, every moment. On the final day, we had a bonfire. All week, there was a great 10 foot high pile of logs in the middle of a small field waiting to be set ablaze. And we cooked up quite a feast to prepare for it. We had pizzas and bread, all handmade and fired in a proper clay oven. There was an incredible deer and wild boar stew, jam packed with meat. We even had a kind of homemade wine, some sort of alcohol they'd brewed up themselves. It was quite a feast. And actually, after the healthy food we'd been eating all week, it sat kind of heavy in our stomachs, all the bread and meat. 
I mean, it was great, but I was surprised at the end of the night there was actually some food left over. It was so delicious, but so very filling. We ate well that night. I've spoken a lot about the work we did, and that will really be my memory of this temple planting the rice, chopping the wood, real honest work, self sustained, living off the land. But I also had a few deep contemplative moments during meditation that I would also like to share. Meditation was not always deep and easy at the temple. As anyone who practices meditation will know, there are times in which you go deep, have some incredible experiences, but also a lot of times in which you're just struggling to stay focused or even just to stay awake. The first really nice meditation I had was after my second day of chopping wood. Toward the end of the working day, I really just got into a routine. There was a period in which me and the other guy I was working with just stopped talking, and I almost went into a trance, picking up the wood, placing it on the block, swinging the axe, picking up the wood, placing it on the block, swinging the axe. Again and again, fluid motion, focusing on my breath, on the movements. For a while, I was even chanting Namu Myoho Renge Kyo, Namu Myoho Renge Kyo as I worked. So I got into a very meditative state as I worked. Then, later that evening, when we were sat in meditation, I felt so comfortable, so at peace. And it occurred to me the importance of our regular routine and the need for fulfilling productive work in our overall mental clarity. I think often people look to meditation as the cure, the antidote, which it certainly is in many respects. Through meditation, we will improve our concentration, still our restless mind, find retreat from the rigors of daily life, all that good stuff. But it works the other way around too. If you have a healthy, productive, peaceful lifestyle, that will prepare you for meditation so that when you do sit, you will already be at a more stable baseline and able to progress even further into ever more higher levels of practice. Does that make sense? I hope what I'm explaining makes sense to you. One other thought I had whilst I was sitting in meditation, as I sat, like I said before, it was often a little tough. Like in the morning, on the first couple of days, it was freezing cold, sitting in the Zazendo at like 4 a.m., or after a long day of work, after I'd been chopping all that wood, my back was kind of feeling it. So when I sat Zazen, I did at one point feel quite a strain in my back, keeping myself upright in that position. So sometimes, sitting meditation was a little tough. And you can imagine that in those moments, your mind starts to wander. So I was thinking to myself, sometimes, wouldn't it be so nice to be sat at home now? I could get a snack from the fridge, make myself whatever drink I want, 
chill out, put my feet up. Instead, I'm sat here with none of those creature comforts, far from home, forcing myself to concentrate, pushing myself through this effort every day. So I became aware of this desire, the desire to be comfortable, to be in my own home where I can relax and do whatever I want. But at the same time, I know that's not really what I want. I mean, if that was truly what I wanted, then why did I go to the temple in the first place? Why expend all that time, effort, and money to remove myself from the comforts of home? Because I know those comforts are not truly fulfilling. When I'm at home, especially over the last two years, I'm always thinking about how I want to go on retreat. I want to go up into the mountains and subject myself to harsh training. I want to take time off work, get up early in the morning and sit long hours of meditation. I want to remove distractions and live the Spartan lifestyle. I know I want all of these things. I know these are the things that make me a strong, capable individual. And these are the events that last in our memory. You don't remember all of those days sitting on your ass in front of a TV. You remember that one day you busted your ass running a marathon. So I just thought it was interesting, the nature of desire. When I'm at home, I dream of going on retreat. Then when I'm on retreat, I desire the comfort of home. That is the insipid nature of desire always wanting something you don't have. It occurs to me that the conclusion to be had here is to rely on the conscious, rational, decision-making mind. I know that I made the decision to go on retreat, fully aware that it may be challenging at times. I shouldn't let the emotional content of suffering sway my decision once I encounter the difficulty itself. Because that's what people do all the time, isn't it? We think, man, I need to lose some weight. I should join the gym. Then we join the gym. But when we get there, we don't enjoy the suffering and difficulty of physical training. So we give up and quit. Do not allow transient emotional content to sway your rational decision-making faculties. Think carefully. Decide what you wish to pursue. Then, once you have made that decision, execute it to completion, regardless of the hardship and difficulty you encounter in doing so. This retreat, these six days at Antaiji, were a great experience. I had a lot of fun. I'm glad I went. And it certainly helped to reinforce my practice, my pursuit of the way. But it wasn't anything so deeply profound or life-changing. I'm not complaining or criticizing anything. That's just my assessment of this particular experience. Every retreat is different, and even the same one retreat is a unique experience for each person attending it. On the morning of the last day, as we were preparing to leave, we all sat down together in the Zazendo and discussed our experience together. 
Everyone, of course, has a different background and entirely different perspective of their time there. One or two people actually got quite emotional about it. And it made me realize my own perspective. Now, since coming home, I've posted photos and comments about my trip to Antaiji on Twitter. And I realize that to many people, this is some incredible, amazing trip. When I think back to myself as a teenager in the UK, the thought of traveling to Japan, going up into the mountains and practicing at a Zen monastery for a week, that is just ridiculous. <laughs> But really, for me now, this has become kind of normal. This type of lifestyle, the training, the meditation, exercise, yoga, reading, writing, gratitude, worship, discipline, this is essentially my daily life wherever I am. And I'm glad for that. My life is a constant pursuit of the way. That is good. That is exactly how I wish to live. But I think what I'm trying to say is that. Even that will eventually become normal. And maybe with normalcy also comes complacency. So I should remember to stay vigilant, to continue to exert myself as if I have only just begun, as with the mind of a beginner, as they say. And you too. I talk to you now. As if I'm talking to myself 10, 12 years ago. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, what your living situation is, whatever your experience is, you are always able to realign yourself and take steps toward your own realization of the way. Going on retreat is nice. These opportunities to remove yourself for a short while and really focus on your training. Is extremely valuable, make no mistake, but it's not entirely necessary. What's important is that we take action within our daily life, engage the right habits, the routines, practices, the mindset, and awareness. You can't transform your entire life overnight, it doesn't work that way, but slowly. Week by week, day by day, we can apply effort and engage ourselves with productive, venerable pursuits. And eventually, with enough time and effort, these actions will accumulate and will become our default mode of living and will transform our entire existence. This is the way. I hope you found that interesting. I'm glad I was able to have that opportunity again. As I mentioned before, I've not been able to go on retreat for a couple of years due to the Chinese virus of unspecified origin. Experiences like that always refresh me, reinvigorate me, and make me excited to get home and get back to work, to pursue the tasks and projects I'm working on. It's not like when you go on holiday and you dread going back home, back to the grind. These experiences have the opposite effect. They fill me with gratitude and appreciation for the fantastic life I lead. 
Life is great, and I am glad to be alive. What an exciting time we live in! Such opportunity, such beauty and splendor. If you would like to engage yourself in pursuit of the way, but are unsure where to begin, I recommend my own book, The Marshall Method, available on Amazon. And you can find links to all my content at budo.card.co. That's b-u-d-o.c-a-r-r-d.co. Thank you for listening. Hopefully. Japan will finally decide to open its borders and allow people to visit once more. Then you can come and have an experience just like this yourself. Until then, maintain your effort and continue to engage yourself where you are now. For those on the way, become the way.